dogmatic where parenting is con concerned. And I talked to him about the kind of competing emotions of joy and responsibility when you have a brand new baby. But, but I think that, that our families, and especially fathers, have way more influence in the lives of our children and in society than we realize, and that's good and bad. The truth is, getting it right as a parent is really hard. I was having conversation with Todd, our worship pastor, this last week. He said, you know, I've never been the parent of a 16-year-old before. That's the way it works. It's always a first. So I want to make this a very, very general statement today that, that goes with our, our study. And I think this is the sentiment I was struggling with. As parents, we all prefer Esau. Now, we don't always get Esau, and a lot of times we just take whatever we get. But we want an Esau. Genesis chapter 25, I'm reading in verse 27. The Bible says, as the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. And every dad in the place said, yes, that's my boy. That's as things should be. But then the Bible goes on. But Jacob, who was Esau's twin brother, had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Now, what do you, what do you think that means? Jacob had a quiet temperament. Now, there's nothing wrong with being introverted. As parents, if we have an introverted kid, we say, well, he's studious. He's an honor roll student, right? And there's nothing wrong with, with preferring the tense to the fields or the city to the country or the known to the unknown. It's just not preferable. We prefer Esau's. And you know, you know what it's like, those of you that are parents, your kids are born quiet and you spend the first two years of their lives trying to get them to talk, and then you spend the next 12 years of their lives trying to get them to shut up, <laughs> and then they hit an age where they stop talking to you. And now you don't know what to do. You're kind of stuck. You remember the phase where they put no trespassing signs on their bedroom door, and they want nothing to do with you whatsoever? But the truth is, as a child, it doesn't take long to discover that people can hurt you with words. And as you're growing up, you realize that you need words to navigate this world, especially as you become an adult. And maybe this is why parents prefer Esau. Because that athlete is comfortable wherever he goes. He's self-assured. He kind of lights up the room when he comes in. But the quiet ones kind of struggle to fit in, don't they? Tent boy is going to get crushed by the world. That's what happens. All right, going on. Let's see what God says in verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, this seems like a really bad idea. This favoritism is going to just destroy this family, and a train wreck kind of seems inevitable. Now, I'm confident that most of us had loving, affirming fathers. Now, there are others that did not, and I understand that's terribly painful. But the truth is, even the best fathers, the most well-intentioned fathers, 
prefer Esau's. And it's not that our intentions are bad, it's the distractions of the society. We kind of talked about this last week a little bit. The culture we live in defines for us what success looks like. Your kid needs a degree from a blue chip institution. He needs a six-figure salary at a silk-stocking law firm, and he needs a good-looking spouse that produces 2.3 well-behaved honor students. And that's what the father in you wants for your child. But the truth is, as kids, that's one of the reasons why we feel like we can never measure up. Your brother Esau is taking AP classes and he's getting straight A's. What's your problem? Oh, here's the death knell right here. You have so much potential. Don't you love that? And I knew as a dad, I never wanted to say that to my kid. I always wanted to say, son, I love you just like you are. Grades are just not that important. But then I always said, but how do we help you get that geography grade up? We need a strategy to help you do better in life, right? Because Esau is our potential, and Jacob is who we really are. Our fathers love Jacob. They really do. But he just thinks you'd be happier if you were an Esau. He wants the best for you, right? So this kind of compulsion to attain, this desire to succeed manifests in lots of ugly ways. And we see that in this family. Turn over to Genesis chapter, oh no, we're still in 25. Genesis 25. We'll go to 27 in just a moment. This is verse 29. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew... Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Does anybody think that was coincidental? Or was Jacob kind of strategic here? Verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. Interesting little tidbit. Verse 31, all right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation. Any parents ever hear that? I'm dying here, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn son to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Now, this is a Sunday school story that, that we all kind of know how it turns out, and it's, it's depressing for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're sad about how little regard Esau had for the birthright. This is his rights as the firstborn son who would father, follow in his father's steps and, and kind of carry on his father's legacy. Now, does Esau really think he's going to die if he doesn't get a bowl of soup? And the depressing part is we get a graphic image of Esau's priorities, flesh more than spirit. And the second thing that's sad about this is that Jacob was not satisfied with Esau's birthright. As soon as Jacob had swindled his brother out of the birthright, he went after the blessing. 
And this is an interesting point because Jacob finally got what he's been obsessing over and he walks away disappointed. Jacob wanted Esau's blessing. And the lesson for us is perhaps what you think you want is not what you really want after all. In his book, Hustling God, Craig Barnes said this, Most of the great struggles in your life do not have intrinsic value. Rather, their value is derived from those whose opinions matter to us. I mean, you think about it, so many of the things that we go after in life because we think it would impress someone else, like our career and our education and even our address. We're influenced heavily by what society says about these things. I recently read a, a book on American history that talked about a lot of the, um, the children that were taken slaves by Native American Indians, mostly the Cheyenne. They would take these kids and raise them in tribal settings, and then they, later on in life they would be rescued and brought back to civilization and reunited with the families. Often, those kids would go back to live with the Indians again even though that was not their natural blood relatives. And when they were asked about that, they said they preferred the communal living where everybody was a family and everything was shared. They, they, they talked about their appreciation from nature where everything they needed was provided and they had no possessions and that's the way they wanted it. No clocks, no schedules, just, just freedom, living life in the wild. So I'm thinking, could the things that we think we want, could the things that we're striving for, bigger, more, actually make life worse? So Jacob got the birthright, and now he's going after the blessing. And, and, and what we see is the blessing is not just an addendum to the birthright. It's not just the, the completion of the birthright. The birthright is about material things, and the blessing is about spiritual things. And we can be sure in Isaac and Rebekah's home, they talked constantly about God's covenant promises to grandfather Abraham and how their, their family and their lives revolved around what God did and what God said. And we see here that Esau just did not care about that so much. But Jacob had to have it. Okay, now we're in Genesis 27. A couple more verses here. This is verse 1. One day when Isaac was old and turning blind, he called for Esau, his older son, and said, My son. Yes, father, Esau replied. I'm an old man now, Isaac said, and don't know when I may die. Take your bow and a quiver full of arrows and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish and bring it here for me to eat. Then I'll pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. Now, this is not, son, I want to reminisce with you and, and think about the good old days and share a meal and let's just be dad and son together. This is literally a confabulation between Isaac and his son and God. This is a spiritual rite of passive. It's a holy sacrament. It's the blessing. And if you don't know the story, I won't read it all, but Rebecca, Isaac's wife, overhears his instructions to Esau, and she sees this as an opportunity to push forward her baby and Jacob and find a way to get the blessing that belonged to Esau. So Rebekah barbecued a couple of goats out of the flock and took the goat skins and put them on 
the back of Jacob's hand and the back of his neck because remember Esau is a hairy guy. And then Rebekah and Jacob rehearsed a series of lies that were going to deceive the old man, their blind father. And for a minute it seemed to work. Jacob got the blessing, but then Esau, when he found out about it, swore revenge. The family was devastated. And diving just a little more deeply into this Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau family drama, we see a pathological bit toward deceit. I mean, it seems like who they were generation after generation. And this is kind of hard for us to reconcile because we would look at that and go, why are they even in the Bible? I mean, these are slimy people. Why would God use them? Flip over to Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. I'll show you. Hebrews chapter 12. This is verse 1. Therefore, okay, stop just a second. When you see the word therefore, you always ask, what's that therefore? And he's pointing back to Hebrews chapter 11, which is what we call the hall of fame of faith, where, where the writer of Hebrews lists all the champions of the faith because they trusted God. Listen, they're not commended for their accomplishments. They're commended for their reliance on God. In fact, a lot of them didn't accomplish anything at all. In fact, some of them in Hebrews chapter 11 failed miserably. Yet God commended them because they trusted God. So therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, watch this, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So the point is, we're all on a journey. And Paul uses that, or the writer of Hebrews, we think it's Paul, he uses that to say, well, this is a race we're running. And we can't afford to miss out. We've got to keep going. And he says, watch out for the sin that so easily trips us up. Those of us raised with the King James, all the old timers know that was what we call besetting sins. But the problem that we have is that we're really not sure what constitutes a sin. We like to categorize sin. In fact, that's a hobby among a lot of church people, categorizing sin. But in the Old Testament, it was really simple. Sin was defined as transgressing God's law. If you did something that God said not to do or you didn't do something God said to do, that was sin. And the prophets railed about that. But in the New Testament, the definition of sin broadens considerably. In the New Testament, we learn that we're all sinners. We were born sinners, Romans 3.23. We're all set up for the wrath of God. And so you might say, okay, Randy, well, I'm a sinner. I get that. But I just don't want to end up like Jacob. Life ruined by a string of lies, living in a mess of my own making and striving for things that I already have. I don't want to do that, do you? A couple things very quick. Three action steps here from Hebrews 12.1. First of all, you've got to identify your sin. When we say besetting sin, what we mean is your favorite sin, the one that you keep coming back to, your addiction. The one that you've asked forgiveness for a thousand times, but you know you're going to go back and do it again. 
For Jacob and his family, their besitting sin was lying, deceit. And really, it's easy for us to see. The problem is, it's not easy for us to see our own sometimes. King James says, the sin which doth so easily beset us. I love that. And that entire phrase in English is one Greek word, euperistatos. And it's only found here in Scripture, the only place in the Bible, right here, besetting sin. And it's translated literally, skillfully surrounding. But what we know this means is anything in my life that would hinder my running or impede my progress, that's a besetting sin. Now listen, is anybody listening? Okay. God used Jacob in spite of, not because of, his wickedness. Now, I'm sure that Jacob would say, I wish I wasn't hung up like this. I wish I didn't have this struggle. I wish I wasn't so hampered in my running. So what is your besetting sin? Can you identify it? What is it that keeps you from running the race as well as you could have? Secondly, we got to identify our sin. Second, we got to acknowledge our sin. Now, again, this is fascinating to me, but the Greek word here is only used here in Scripture, agkos in the Greek, and it means bulk or mass. Or, we can take that to mean whatever is in the way, whatever is prominent. Esau was the oddball in this family. We can't find anywhere in Scripture where he ever told a lie. Jacob, though, lied constantly. And we get it because his grandfather Abraham lied. Remember when Abraham and Sarah got to Egypt on the journey and Abraham told Sarah, tell everybody you're my sister so they won't kill me. And Pharaoh took Sarah to be his wife and then found out about it. And Pharaoh dressed down Abraham. And then Isaac told the same lie to Abimelech when they got to Gerar. Told Rebekah, tell everybody you're my sister so I won't get killed. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, what are you trying to get God to kill me? What are you doing? Isn't it funny that these pagan kings are more honest than God's chosen men? And Jacob just lied constantly. So here's the question. Jacob was a liar and received God's blessing. Esau was honorable and God hated him, according to Malachi 1.3. Why? How could that be? Can I suggest to you that God loved Jacob because Jacob acknowledged his sin. Jacob identified his sin and he owned it. Esau was oblivious to his sin. He didn't care. So the truth is we've got to identify the sin that holds us back, but that's not enough. Now we've got to own it. At some point we've got to say the problem is me. I'm the problem, not somebody else, not something else. All right? So we identify our sin. That's hard. We acknowledge our sin. That's really hard. And now comes the easy part. You've got to put away your sin. Apotiphemi, which means to cast off, throw away. And this idea is strip off every weight that slows us down. It's the easiest part of the whole process. Why? Because it is a real struggle to see your sin and to acknowledge your sin because your flesh hates it. Your flesh fights against that compulsion to do good and do right. But when you're finally done, had enough, and in exhaustion and frustration, you finally cast that sin away. Jesus, I'm sick of this. There is a great relief involved in that. Ah, 
Everybody go, ah, see? Okay, so how do I do that, Randy? How do I put away my sin? Only one way that I know of, and it's confession. We deal with our sin by dragging it out into the light. And you confess to God first. That's mandatory. But secondly, you have to find a trusted confidant and let them know that sin so they can hold you accountable. We're not going to go into that, but I think it's mandatory. You see, once Jacob told that first lie, he had to keep on lying in order to get the blessing. And then he had to run away, and he had to lie to Laban, and Jacob's hole kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Not until 20 years later, which we'll read in subsequent weeks, when, when Jacob finally came down and fell face down to Esau and confessed his sin, the Bible says Esau fell on him and kissed him. Finally, Jacob was free after 20 years of struggling. And I'm just wondering if Jacob, trying to run while bound by this web of lies, carrying his burden of fear and guilt and always looking over his shoulder to see who was after him. I wonder if Jacob wished he'd put away his besetting sin years earlier. Uh, this story makes us uneasy. I close with this. And not only does it make us uneasy, it creates a real thorny theological issue for us. Because we know that God chose to bless Jacob but over and over and over, Jacob demonstrated a real perverse, unscrupulous character. So we wonder, how could God bless a family that's so dysfunctional and so ungodly? See the issue? We want God to bless a people that look like a blessing. We want God to honor honorable people. And so we sit here this morning needing God to explain himself. God, how could you not only bless, but then use such miserable people? But then the question is, how could God bless and use me? Because I'm miserable and I'm slimy. The answer to that question is grace, pure and simple. It's not about me. It's about him not about who I am or what I want or what I'm doing. It's about what God wants and what he's doing, what he's up to. You see, I think a lot of Christians run from this false image of God. And it may be because you had a bad father example. I don't know. But a lot of Christians just think they can never measure up. And they're terrified of the idea of standing before God. But here's the truth. Listen, God loves you. Yes, you. And God has a plan for your life, and it is impossible for you to disqualify yourself. The Bible is full of, of, of miserable people, murderers and, and, and sex traffickers, and terrible people that God uses, people we would never choose. And so when we read that, it doesn't make sense to us. It's completely counterintuitive. But the fact is God prefers misfits. I did not say that God will use misfits if that's all that's available. No. God prefers weirdos. And I can prove it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I love this passage of Scripture. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you 
were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those that are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring nothing what the world considers important. Now stop a second. Got to say why. Why does God have a grudge against powerful, wise, important people? I mean, that's what it looks like, right? Why does God want to shame those people? Answer is right here in verse 29. So that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Listen, listen. If you're good looking and talented and gifted and dynamic and God uses you, who gets the glory? But if you're a nobody and you can't string three words together and you're unattractive like me, and God uses you to do miracles, then who gets the glory? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind us that we are created belovedly and artistically and creatively by you. The Bible tells us that while we were still in our mother's womb, you had every single day ordained for us. You had a plan for our lives before we were born. And I just pray, Father, that you would remind us this morning while we struggle in the midst of our insufficiencies, in the face of the news and, and everything we see out there that tells us we're less than, please remind us that we're loved by you. And not only loved by you, but chosen to do great things in and according to your plan. Father, for those this morning that feel disqualified, for those this morning that feel like they've messed up too badly or they've sinned once too often or they've worn out their offers of forgiveness, I pray that you would just speak to them right now by the Holy Spirit and remind them that there's nothing too hard for God. You have a plan for our lives and you're going to do great things in and with us as we surrender to you. So I pray that you would just bring them to yourself, remind them of grace it's grace. It's not because of what we do. It's because of what you did. And just help us understand and remember that you have a plan for our lives and we're walking that out every single day for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.